Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I'll ask you a question as we get started in the sermon, and I'm going to make an assumption, which I know that's always dangerous, right? Like if you make an assumption in a relationship, a lot of times you get yourself in trouble. I'm going to assume you've prayed before. Just the fact that you're here or that you're watching online, I'm going to assume that you've prayed some kind of prayer. Now, I know some of the people that come to our church are skeptics, like you're not even sure if God's real. But I'm going to assume you've prayed this kind of, like, God, if you're out there, then like just throwing something up, right? Like that kind of prayer. Or maybe you've been in a tense moment before. God, if you do this, get me out of the tense moment, I'll do this. Maybe that's why you're at church today. We're glad you're here. Some of you pray all the time. You pray regularly when you wake up in the morning, as you read your Bible, like different moments of the day you've got points of prayer. Some of you pray continuously. Okay, wherever you're at in a conversation with God, I want to ask you this question. What's the boldest prayer you've ever prayed? What's the boldest prayer you have ever prayed? For some of you, that might pop right in your mind. For others of you, it might take a little time. For some of you, it might have been a simple prayer. I had somebody come up to me after the first service and say, as I was thinking about that, the boldest prayer I ever prayed I didn't know it was bold in the moment. I just asked God to teach me to trust him more. And then he talked about how God started to teach him to trust him more. Sometimes we're not ready for what we pray for. You might remember a few weeks ago when I was preaching a sermon, in the middle of it, I just kind of paused and I challenged us all. I said, would you pray, God, do whatever it takes to show me my desperate need for you? And I've had different people respond to me in email and messages and instant messenger and text messages, different things. I had one person who was really candid with me. They said, I didn't start praying that prayer. I'm too scared to pray that prayer. <laughs> As if our not praying, it's going to stop God from doing something in our lives, right? But I had one guy who he texted me, and he told me I could share his text with you. And so I'm going to read it to you today. Um, his name's Josh Glover. Some of you know Josh. If your kids have been through our our Bridge Kids Ministry, Josh and his wife Casey serve in there faithfully, and they've served in different areas throughout the years at our church, but he started praying this prayer. Listen to what he said. And I'm not saying if you pray this prayer, bad stuff's going to happen either, okay? A little disclaimer. But listen to what he said. Hi, Scott. Just wanted to share a story of how the Lord is working in the Revived Church series and the request you've asked us to pray throughout of, God, do whatever it takes to show me my desperate need for you. He said it's being answered. And here's his story. He said that his wife called him at work on Tuesday afternoon, crying and in a panic, and all she said was, call 911 and come home. Can you imagine getting that call? Like, you don't even know why you're calling 911. You're just like, go to my house. I'm going there. Like, then he says, so I did, and I hung up with the intention of calling my wife back to find out more. During my 15-minute ride home, and many missed calls left, left me with no details of what was happened. Reliance on God and desperately pleading with him over the situation was literally all I had. After finally arriving home, I find EMS holding my daughter. He's got a little baby girl. Finding my daughter, who's recovering from a seizure and trying to cool down the fever outside. They have Casey, that's his wife, inside, monitoring blood pressure that had dropped really low. After the second seizure, while I was holding my daughter, we laid her in an ambulance and my first thought was to get as many Christians praying as possible. And so he, he reached out to his 33 men's group that he's a part of here at the church, a great way to get connected with men. And he says, they put Casey, his wife, and, and his daughter in the back of this ambulance <clears throat> to transport her to the ER. And he was following behind alone in a car, having more conversation with God. Now, can you imagine that? 
And I asked him specifically afterward, like in some other text messages, what did you pray? Like, how, and he's praying, like think about the bold prayers you'd be praying, how helpless you'd feel that you're not even in the vehicle your child is in, and you couldn't help him if you were, but you don't even know what's happening in that vehicle. He's crying out to God. Eventually, his daughter was okay, his wife was okay. He said this at the end of the text message. He says, we need the Lord every day just as much as we needed him in the worst day of her life. See, whether you acknowledge your need for God or not, you need, you need him for breath in your lungs. Like, you wouldn't be existing right now if it wasn't for him. But it's in those moments, oftentimes those dire moments, where not only do we recognize our need for him, but we start to boldly cry out to him. What's the boldest prayer you've ever prayed? And the reason why I ask you that question is because the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today some Bible scholars say it's the boldest prayer that was ever prayed. Now think about the prayers that happen in the Bible. Like you got Genesis chapter 18, Abraham's pleading with God, negotiating with God about destroying a city. And Abraham says, if there's 50 righteous people there, will you withhold your wrath? He says, yeah, if there's 50. If there's 45, if there's 40, can I get a 30? Can I get a 20? And he just keeps going. Like it's, a, it's an interesting passage of Scripture to read. He gets down to 10 people. He says, God, if there's 10 righteous people. God knows there's not 10. He goes, yeah, there's 10. That's a bold prayer request. Think about Elijah with the widow's son when the widow's son is dead, crying out to God. Jesus is the same thing. Think about the prayer, like I shared with you a couple weeks ago, the man who prayed, I believe, help my unbelief. Like it's a bold prayer. I can't even believe without you, God. And there's not a desperate situation in the passage we're looking at today. But there's one commentator, you can look him up if you want, his name's Robinson, says there's never been a prayer prayed that's more bold than this prayer. And so let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you've got a copy of the scripture, I invite you to open up your Bible with me, and if you've got the app, you can scroll to it, and some of the verses will be on the screen today. But what's happening in Ephesians, it's interesting, the way the whole book's laid out, there's six chapters, and so we're in chapter 3 right in the middle. The first three chapters, there's almost zero commands. There's one command there that says to remember something. But there's not anything for you to do. Like, there's no activity. There's no action. It's all truth. It's all things that are true about God and about you. And then chapter 3 is like a transition into chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are how to live the truths out. But this prayer happens right in the middle. And Paul's writing to this group of people. He loves them. He helps start this church where they're at. And listen to what he says. And verse 14 is where I'll start reading. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees. Before the Father. Now, that wasn't a normal posture of prayer. Like many of you, when you pray, and I know some of you even in this room today, get down on your knees and pray to God, lean at the seat. And, but Jews, they'd look up to heaven and pray. Now, sometimes they would get on their knees, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a passionate prayer. So I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So, who he's talking to, God, the creator of all, that according, not out of, according, just think about it. If a rich man gives you some money out of his wealth, he can give you any amount, 10 bucks. A billionaire gives you $10 out of his wealth. If he gives according to his wealth, you're not getting 10 bucks. God owns it all. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, underline that word, we'll come back to it later, with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, there's that word again, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that's a bold prayer request, but is that the boldest request ever? He's not praying. He's praying for a church. He's not praying for a whole city. He's not praying for somebody who's dead. He's praying for believers here. What makes this bold? How could somebody say this is the boldest prayer request ever? The key to understanding that is the phrase we, we got when we first started reading this passage. It says, for this reason. Did you see those first three words? For this reason. We see that throughout the Bible. When God institutes marriage in Genesis 2.24, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, the two will become one. You see it, Jesus quotes it, you see it throughout the Bible. Eventually, you don't actually find out the reason until the book of Ephesians. So it takes a few thousand years before you actually get the reason in Ephesians chapter 5. What's the reason for this prayer? Well, if you go up in chapter 3 in verse 1, you'll see the exact same phrase. If you have your Bible, you can just scroll up there and, and look at it. And so for this reason. So Paul started to pray actually in chapter 3 in verse 1. For this reason. And then he went on a little tangent. <laughs> do you ever do that? Do you ever start to pray and get a little distracted? Fall asleep, whatever, like the disciples, right? I prayed before. I was like, God, let's pray for my mom. That she be oh my mom. It made me think of my cousin. My cousin makes good chicken. Oh man, you know what? I'm kind of hungry. It's like the next thing you know, it's like I need a snack. Oh wait, I was praying. And then I'll feel like, oh, I'm not that spiritual. I'm like, well, Paul did it. He does it right here. It starts for this reason in chapter three and verse one. So what's the reason? And what the reason is, it's all the truth that's been laid out in chapter one and in chapter two. It's all those things that have been said about you and about God. If you go back, if you look at chapter 1, chapter 1 is all about you and your identity in Christ. So that you've been adopted into God's family. Before the beginning of time, God predestined you for love. Listen, listen. You read verses 4 and 5 in chapter 1. If you've ever thought that God's love for you is dependent on your behavior for him, he loved you before you existed. It's not based on your behavior. It's his plan to love you. That you'd be holy and blameless. He's made you positionally holy and blameless. He blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He's given you the Holy Spirit. At the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit came to live in you. Verse 13, chapter 1. You think I'm making this stuff up? It's all right there. It's your identity in chapter 1. Chapter 2, do you know what chapter 2 is about? Your salvation. It's a great salvation. It's all about Him. It says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but you are made alive in Christ. So I know it's a rainy day. That's an amen moment, FYI. Let me do, let's do it again. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are made alive in Christ. Amen. All right. 75% of you. I love it. That's great. You're strong. 25% you're going to get saved at the end. Listen. <laughs> and it goes on. It talks about how hopeless we were, how, how separated from God we were. But it says, but God. The answer wasn't you. It was God. But God did a work. And then that famous verse in verse 8 is by grace. That's what you didn't deserve. Through faith, not of your works. Or you'd be able to take credit for your salvation. But God's got works planned for you, verse 10. You're his workmanship. Poema is the Greek word. It means that you're a work of art. There's nobody else like you. Nobody else can live your life. He predestined works for you before time began that he wanted you to walk in as a follower of his. All this truth, wrapped. it's for this reason that Paul begins to pray. For this reason, I fall to my knees as a passionate prayer. For this reason, I'm going to the only one that can answer any of these prayers, the Father, from whom everyone derives their name. And then what does he actually pray for? You know what he's praying? When you look at what he's praying for, that's why you get that this is a bold request. Because he's not praying that you would know all the information of chapters 1 and 2. He's praying you would experience it. That's, that's why I'm preaching this in a revival series. 
because we live in a place where there's a lot of people that know a lot of, st- a lot of things about God. You've been to Bible studies. Maybe you've even memorized this passage of Scripture, but have you experienced the truths of chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians about your identity in Christ, about your salvation in Christ, about who He truly is, about His faithfulness in your life, about the fact that neither height nor depth, all the things we sang this morning, can nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Have you experienced that love? Because there's a difference between knowing something and experiencing it. Have you seen any of those YouTube videos that have been going viral lately of people that get those glasses where they were colorblind, but then the glasses let them see color? And think about what it it must have been like to have been told about what blue looks like or yellow or green. And then when these people put these glasses on, they cry. Like someone's described to them before, you know, Carolina blue and the tar heels and the sky and... But everything was gray. And then they, put, and they see the blue and they cry and they become Duke fans, right? That's what happens. Well, go Wolfpack. I like red better. Like whatever happens to that. Like something happens when they experience it. Or similar, have you ever seen somebody that couldn't hear and they get those cochlear implants? Can you imagine hearing? Like you read, see, you can look at words. And, but then hearing the voice of your child, hearing your spouse, Something different about experiencing it. That's what Paul's praying here. It's for this reason that he prays. And do you know what he prays? He prays some specific things. And this is what I want to challenge you to pray. Will you boldly pray that God would dwell, would live, make himself at home in your life? Would you pray that God would make himself at home in your life? Where do you get that? Well, look at the passage. Go back to verse 16 is where he really starts praying. Verses 14 and 15 are really kind of the setting, like he's kneeling, who he's praying to. But then what he's praying is verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he, God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that, here's why, Christ may, and here's to make yourself at home, dwell in your hearts. And how does it happen? Through faith, your trust in him. That word dwell there, it's an interesting word especially when you consider who Paul's praying to. He's not praying and talking here as he's praying. He's not talking about you asking Jesus into your heart. See, Jesus is already present in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. We know he's talking to followers of Jesus because in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, you can check me on this, he calls them saints. He's been talking about their salvation. That's not a bold prayer request to pray that people who are already believers would be believers. It's kind of, they are. That's not what he's asking here. See, if you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you have Jesus in you present already. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, Christ doesn't dwell. You don't have Jesus. You're not a Christian. So what is he asking for here? He's not asking for Jesus to come and be present when he says dwell. He's saying settle, make yourself at home. That's what the word dwell literally means, to settle down and to make yourself at home. I like how one Bible commentator, his name's Warren Wearsby, he says it like this. When Paul is praying for, what Paul is praying for is a deeper experience between Christ and his people. He yearns for Christ to settle down and feel at home in their hearts, not a surface relationship, but an ever-deepening fellowship. That's what he's saying here when he says the word dwell, dwell, come make yourself at home in my life, that you'd settle down in this place. And you think about it, how many, how many of you have been places before? You're present, you're there, but you wouldn't settle, you don't want to live there. Like, I think to my, when I think about it, I think about camping. 
That's like the worst idea anyone's ever come up with, camping. Like, that's, what a stupid idea. If you have a home that you live in, like an apartment, house, doesn't matter, camper, wherever it is you live in, if you've got walls and a mattress and, like, you can condition the air, why would you use, like, vacation time and stuff to go lay on the ground where it gets hot and cold and there's things that want to eat you, much less do you not have things to eat in there. Like, the more you think about camping, the less sense it makes. So I don't like camping. My kids want to go camping, right? Those are kids. Like, it's just like a thing. Like, kids want to camp. I remember one time, one time, I borrowed a tent. <laughs> I'm not buying a tent because we're doing this one time, okay? So I borrowed a tent from Pastor John, our executive pastor. He's crazy. He thinks camping's a good idea. And so I borrowed a tent from him, and we put it out in the backyard. So that's how, like, adventurous we were. I put it in the backyard of our house. You know how bad that was for me? Because all I had to do was unzip it and be like, there's a mattress in that house right there. Like, our kids, they have a hard time not fighting with each other inside our house. Try putting them in a six-by-six six area and telling everybody to go to sleep, okay? And go well. And we're laying there, and there's, like, animals howling. I'm like, they want to eat us. What are we doing? I was there. I was not making myself at home. Do you know what have to happen for me in a tent to make myself at home? First of all, there'd have to be some walls to separate me from those kids. Then I'm going to get rid of some stuff, right? Like we're going to get sleeping bags out, like done. Nobody's going to be sleeping in a bag, okay? That's not how it was designed to happen. Mattress coming in. Like we're bringing a mattress in. If I'm going to make myself at home, we're going to do some changes here. Listen, if Jesus is going to make himself at home in your life, there's some stuff that's going to have to go. And he's going to bring some different things in. There's some renovation that will take place. And what, what happens, we talk about revival is you know what will happen? And, and you, this might even sound appealing to you right now. But he starts to do a revival in your heart, it will. Is he's going to start taking things that, that you might even hold dear out of your life. And did you see how he dwells in our hearts? Did you see it? Let me, let me read it to you from the passage so that you don't think that I'm making this up again. Dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you trust him that he actually wants what's best for you, that the things he's going to take out of your life aren't best for you? And things he's going to bring into your life are best for you. And what he's going to bring into your life is a desire for the things that we read about in chapter 1, holiness, that you're going to want the things of God, that you're going to start to despise the things of this world. If Jesus would start dwelling in some of our hearts, some of us, the movies that we are cool with watching today, next week they're going to seem despicable to us. Some of the music that we're okay with, it's like, why, why am I? We become so desensitized to sin and sometimes even we get so deceived that Satan comes as an, uh, an enemy. Like he's our enemy. He comes as an angel of light. And he, think about when he, he tempts Jesus. He twists Scripture. Some of us in our own desire to be obedient Christians have become desensitized to sin. Our desire to show other people that we're, we're, we're cool, like we're open-minded. We love them. The next thing you know, we're headed down a path that we never thought we'd go down. We become desensitized to sin. If Jesus is going to dwell in our lives, he's going to make us sensitive. It's going to be like a nerve got opened up, and we get sensitized to sin. And we become sensitive to that, and we start to long for the things of him. That's him dwelling in our lives. I remember I've preached this passage many times throughout my, my years of knowing Jesus, and we dedicate our kids to this passage familiar with it. I remember the first time that I ever studied this passage, somebody pointed me to a book by a guy named Robert Munger. It's called uh, My Life, Christ's Home. And the reason why I like the book is because he uses our lives in, in a home as an analogy. 
and talks about Jesus moving in. And I'll just share a couple with you. He talks about the library of a house. He says, the library of your home is the mind. And what happens when Jesus moves in, he takes the trash or worthless things, he throws them out. He replaces them with truth. The dining room of your home represents your appetites. He takes sinful appetites for things like materialism and prestige. He replaces them with things like humility and generosity. The living room, that's where fellowship happens. That's where you hang out with your people, the friends, the relationships. He says he changes the relationships that make us more like this world into relationships that grow us closer to him. The closet. Can you guess? You know what's in your closet, don't you? That's where we keep the shame. Think about Pastor Seth talking about Genesis chapter 3 and shame coming there. You know, they tried to cover themselves. They did a terrible job of it. And then God covered them. But it all eventually pointed us to the cross where Jesus' blood covers us and we're cleansed by the blood. That's chapter 1 of Ephesians. That's what's happened is we're, we're made, we're not holy, we're made holy. And what happens is when Jesus moves into your life, he takes the shame and the secrets, because we got, like, there's sins that some of you would, share. like, if we got into a small group and said, we need to be transparent, you say, you know, I really struggle with, you know, pride, because I'm so awesome, and I really struggle with, that was a joke, and I really struggle with, um, if I have to tell you, it's not quite as good, but anyway, I really struggle with jealousy, and, you know, I need to stop looking at social media. There's things that we're okay with sharing. And then we got our things that we don't want anybody to know. And Jesus deals with those things. And you know what, then there's things that you don't even know that are in your closet. I love, we're doing this, this prayer initiative as a church, and hopefully you got this card over the last couple of weeks if you haven't, you can grab one on the way out. And we're just trying to have a focused time of prayer as a church, and we're asking God to show, convict us of our sins and show us ourselves, show us Him, and, and direct us even in the next steps that we have as a church and as individuals. And I love the passage that's under conviction. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, it says, show me if there's any offensive way in me. What's great about the context of Psalm 139 is it shows that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And then to conclude that psalm with, show me if there's any offensive way in me, is interesting because there's things that you know that aren't conducive with a great relationship with God that are in your life. And nobody else knows they're in your life. And then there's things that you don't even realize in your own life are there. I was telling the first service yesterday, uh, one of our neighbors was selling their house. They had an open house, and it reminded me of the, a time when my wife and I we were moving out of a house, and we sold it. We thought it was a great house. And we got the contract on the house. It had a contingency on it. And some of you, if you sold houses, you know what I'm talking about. The contingency was, it was contingent upon inspection. Now, we had replaced the HVAC. All the doorknobs were tight. They, like, everything worked. It was, seemed great. Like, I wasn't worried about it at all. We got the, the inspection back. It was this huge list of things. And it wasn't even that it was like a bunch of the stuff was silly stuff, but there were some major things on there. Like it said we had termites. I thought that can't be true. We have a, we have a Terminex contract. If you work for Terminex, I hate you. No, I'm glad you're here today. Um, <laughs> what ended up happening, I called Terminex up. I was like, I just got an inspection on my house. It says we have termites. I've been paying you every year to come and inspect my house. They said, no, 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 we don't inspect your house. Read the fine print. We inspect the ground. You don't have any subterranean. I'm like, I don't care about stuff crawling under the ground. I'm like, mad at them. At any rate, I'm wasting money. So if you work for Terminex, you owe me some money. I'm glad you're here. I'll meet you in the lobby. Um, we had termites in the house. I didn't know that. They're eating the structure away. Said we had mold. Mold will kill you, FYI. 
It's like mold. So we called somebody to come and get rid of the mold. They showed up in hazmat suits. I'm like, I live here. You won't even breathe this? Are you kidding me? Like, it's happening in my house. Put a tent around the bottom of the house, clean the mold off there. And hopefully it's okay. We don't live there anymore. But we were living there. We didn't even know that was there. That's true in the physical house. If Christ is going to come and dwell, make himself at home in your life, you don't think there's things like that in our souls? He wants to remove. He wants to take some stuff out and bring some things in. Do you, it's by faith. Do you trust him? That's not the only thing that Paul prays here, though, that makes this a bold prayer. Keep looking with me. Look at verse 16 again. Verse 16, he says this. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, key word, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. All right, what else? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, that's key, verse 17 says love, may have strength, that's another key word, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love, there's love again, we're talking about love in this passage for sure, verse 19, of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is definitely about love. It's in verse 17, it's in verse 19, let me tell you something, the longer I walk with Jesus, the longer I pastor this church, the more I become convinced of the importance of knowing the simple truth that God loves you. Like little kids sing about this in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. You probably know that. But if you don't experience that, you'll never love him. And we love him because he first loved us. Not because we knew he first loved because you you've experienced the love of Christ. And so this is so, I think this is so important that, I mean, we've all got insecurities, right? I think if we would get this, it flushes out all of our insecurities. If we'd be secure in the love of God, it, it would deal with all of our insecurity. I've got insecurities. I've got insecurities about my physical appearance. I've got insecurities about my, my mind. I've got insecurities about spiritual stuff. I don't know what your insecurities are, but I know we all have them. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be secure in the love of God? To actually believe, not just know, not like, I, I agree with that. Like to believe, to live in, to, to sit in the love of Christ. What, you, what would you have to worry about? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ? That can never be taken from you? Like there's a reason why when Jesus started his earthly ministry, the Father said to him, this is my son with whom, with whom I love, that I am well pleased. NIV. Other ways that they translated said, my beloved son. There's a reason it doesn't say my talented son. My anointed son. My son, with, I, I got a great plan for him. All of that stuff's true stuff. Because this love was so key. There's a passage of Scripture that's always confounded me. It's a simple passage. It's in John chapter 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And most preachers, they make a big deal about it. He washed Judas' feet. Judas is going to betray him. He even washed Judas' feet. But, you know, at the beginning of that passage, it says that Jesus is showing the full extent of his love. And I've thought sometimes, like, no, isn't the full extent of his love the cross? It's when he goes to the cross, he dies on the cross. But he's given a demonstration of that kind of love that puts others first here in this passage. But you know what else it says in verse 3? If you've got a Bible, you can look at it in John chapter 13, or if they've got the verse, they can put it up there. It says that Jesus, before he takes off, they're arguing about who's the greatest, Luke tells us. And Jesus takes off his rabbi robe, which shows that he's actually the greatest, and puts on a towel, but there's a verse wedged in there that we oftentimes skim by. It's verse 3. It says, knowing, who he was, knowing where he came from and knowing where he was going, he was secure in his identity. He knew who he was. He knew he was a loved, my one and only, my only begotten son. 
if we would, if we would grasp the love that God has for us, it'd free us up to walk in the good works that God has for us. How many of us, we miss it because we're so, we're insecure. And we don't, we don't even receive his love. Did you see when I read this? This is what rocked me on this passage. I've preached this passage before. It never, never struck me before. I love that about God's word. Sometimes you read it and you get something brand new and a passage you've read a hundred times. Why in the world does it say that we have to be strengthened to comprehend his love? Like, did you see that? Well, verse 18, that we may have strength, not wisdom, not understanding, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Why do I have to be strengthened to understand his love, to comprehend his love, to grasp his love? Is it too heavy? And we can go to the text and say, well, he says here, breadth, length, height, depth. There's four things there. If you start reading Bible commentators, they get all complicated, talk about science, like this is four-dimensional, beyond our three-dimensional world. It's like, huh, what are you talking about? Here's what it's talking about. You don't get it. That's why it says the next thing. It surpasses, I want you to comprehend something that surpasses knowledge, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But why do I need strength? Is it because it's so vast? One person I read said, compared it to when Abraham is told he's going to have descendants in the Old Testament, and it says, your descendants will outnumber the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. In other words, you can't count it. It's beyond your comprehension. The Psalm, Psalm 36.5 says this, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. If you just go back to chapter 1 in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that you've been predestined in love, he predestined you. You've been loved before the beginning of time. Let's see, think about the extent of his love. Think about, he'd go to any length for you to experience his love. The cross. And Jesus left heaven, came to earth. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, we were children of wrath. But that wrath was poured out instead on his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he sees you as righteous, as blameless when you place your faith in Christ. If you haven't done that, you can do that today. You want to know his love, you look at the cross. But why do I need to be strengthened? I don't get that. Why strength? It bothers me about the Bible. Sometimes there's things in there I don't understand. Sometimes there's things in there that don't make sense. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to preach this in this series, because I was like, what do you mean strengthened? I was reading this passage, like, we've got to talk about this. What do we, why do we need to be strengthened? And there was a commentator that helped open this up for me. And so I want to read to you what he said, exactly the way he said it. He said this. So the main idea is this. Just as the ill or infirm need to be strengthened so they can take in all that life has to offer, so also God's children need to be inwardly strengthened to receive all the blessings God desires for them. Paper bags are not fit containers for valuables, he goes on to say. In other words, when I tell you God loves you, some of you don't receive it because you can't handle his love. So you need to be strengthened in your inner being. You're, it's like you're ill and you, can, you can't handle this good thing that's being given to you. It's like my, some of you have heard me tell a story of my bad dad passed away. He had an aortic dissection, which is the aorta that supplies blood to the rest of the body. Um, it tore. And he had a bunch of surgeries over about 13, 15 months. And I remember sitting with the doctors one time and we're talking and it like, I'm so naive. I'm like 20 something years old. I'm just sitting there and they're telling me stuff and how complicated the next surgery is going to be and how things could go wrong. And I thought, I'll share an idea with them they haven't thought of. Why don't we do a heart transplant? And the doctor just said, your dad can handle that. He's not healthy enough. 
He smoked. He'd been through all these surgeries. Like, it's just his body couldn't even handle that. That's what it's like with us and his love. There's things that, that we have in our lives oftentimes that resist receiving the love of God. It's interesting wording here in this passage, actually. If you go back to it, it says that we'd be rooted and grounded in his love. You see that? So verse 17, being rooted and grounded in love. That's, it's an agricultural term, that we'd be rooted. Think about plants, their roots going down in the soil. I think about some of us, you know, I joke about, you know, what's, what's the sin that we'd confess? Some of you have pride in your life. And that's hard soil, by the way. Have you ever tried to plant something in the ground? I'm not saying you have to be like a professional gardener or have all you know, just plant grass in the, in the front yard. I tried to do that recently. It didn't go well, so I had to go out there and I had to till the soil. Because otherwise, you know, birds come and eat all the seed and the, the heat just kind of, you know, dries the seed up and doesn't do any good. You've got to break the ground. Some of you, if you pray that God strengthens you for his love, you're praying for brokenness in your life because your heart's too hard for you to receive his love right now. So he's going to till the soil. So his love can be rooted in your heart. Grounded, grounded is not an agricultural term. Grounded is a building term. It's an architectural term. Have a good foundation. You got you have it grounded, lay, lay a good foundation down, have a good building. I remember when we were looking for where we would build our first campus as a church. One of the properties we inquired on, it's still available. Still, you can drive by it this week. It's on Glenwood Avenue. It's next to the auction auto place that's out there empty piece of land. You ever ask yourself the question of why is this sitting here? Well, when we inquired about it, we were told the land is worthless. Because any price that we'd pay to buy the land, it wouldn't be worth it because back before I even lived here, there was a hurricane. People dumped a bunch of trash on that land and then the grass has grown up. It looks like normal ground. It's all garbage. In order for you to get to the actual ground to, build a, to lay a foundation for a building would cost you so much money to get all the debris out of there, it wouldn't be worth buying the property, they said. For some of us, we have a hard time receiving it. There's so much junk and distraction and sin in our lives that needs to be removed. See, this goes, this goes right together with Christ dwelling in our hearts. If he's going to dwell in our heart, he's going to remove some stuff because you know what he wants to do? He wants to put down roots. He wants to lay a good foundation of his love in your heart because it's a simple truth that God loves you. But if you get that, it changes everything. Some of us, we believe lies, that darkness, I say, God loves you. And you think, oh, he's talking to everybody else in this room. Not me. Maybe because of something you've done or you haven't done enough or something happened to you. Like all stories, there's lots of stories with the amount of people that are sitting in this room right now. But that's not true. You're not the exception to his love. God never made a person he didn't love. When he died, he died for the world. He died for you. Now, did you receive it? That's a different question. So we gotta, we got to receive this. Are you strong enough? Are you strong enough? Would you? I dare you to pray, God, make me strong enough to receive your love. So strengthen me to be rooted and grounded in love that I comprehend, that I can grasp this love, this love that surpasses knowledge, but it doesn't stop there. There's more to this. He tells us how. How does this happen? Look at verse 18. We may have strength to comprehend, and this is a phrase that's easy for us to read past, especially in our individualistic, isolated, we live in crowded loneliness state of being. With all the saints, that's how. Do you want to know how you grasp his love? It's not you doing some seance. God, show me your love. The key is not to become a monk, and then you'd get love because you wouldn't be so messed up with all the stuff happening in the world. No. It's with all the saints. It's a community project. 
Do you want to know what it looks like? It looks like chapter four, chapter five, chapter six of Ephesians. That's when it talks about living this stuff out. Do you know where it talks about? In your marriage, with your kids, at your work, with these people that are in your church. Who are you confessing sins to? Who's loving you so that the world will know that you're disciples? Who, who is it that's carrying burdens with you? Because like, as we go through the highs and as we go through the lows of life, we start to learn God's love for us through people with skin on that represent God to us. We've got to do this together. And this isn't a promo for small groups. That's a way. But you, if you're living life and you think, I got friends, I know some people, who's doing life with you? Like, who really knows your fears? Who knows your secrets? Who knows your dreams? Who's encouraging you daily to live out the truth of God's word? That's, that's how you get to know God's love. But he prays here also, and this might seem like the, the, the boldest of the whole thing, but it's really a summary of the whole thing, that God would fill us with his fullness. Will you pray that God would fill you with the fullness of him? We pray that God fill me with your fullness. Look at what he says in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What he's really talking about here, it's a summary of Christ dwelling in our hearts and, and God's love being rooted and grounded in our lives that we'd experience his presence. And we're talking about revival in this series. Anytime there's been a great revival, there's been a renewed sense of the presence of God amongst God's people. And the first great awakening, it's oftentimes associated with Jonathan Edwards and some other famous guys from back in that time. Uh, one, one historian said this. So there was in the minds of the people a general fear of sin and of the wrath of God denounced against it. There seemed to be a general conviction that all the ways of man were before the eyes of the Lord. That God was actually physically here, present, in our midst, all the time. That's revival. That's the fullness of God coming in your life. What he's praying for here, what he's praying for is that you would experience these things, these truths that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. That's why this is a bold prayer. You can't be filled with the fullness of God. You're a finite being. How can this possibly happen? That God's presence will become so real in your life that it changed the way you live. So do you know what happened at the point of your salvation? Like try and grasp this for a second. You, we're all sinners. Like the Bible says that we're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. We're separated from God. But when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees his son with whom he is well pleased that he loves. He sees Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus died on that cross, when he absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for you, what happened is you, when you placed your faith in Jesus, were washed with the blood of Christ. And so even though practically you are not holy, he sees you as, that's why Ephesians chapter 1 says you are holy, you are blameless. It's not that God's wrong. He's talking about what he sees when he looks at you as a follower of Jesus Christ, as he sees the righteousness of Christ. So try and imagine what that is like in like one moment. He sees, it's like a pile of filthy rags. Even the best thing you can possibly do is despicable to God. And then he looks at you and you place your faith in his son Jesus and you're cleansed. And all that dark sin has turned as white as snow. Positionally, that is true about you. Do you know what it is to be mature in Christ? It's when your position in Christ lines up with your practice in Christ. And that's what Paul's praying for. And when he says, I pray that you be filled to the fullness of God, he's saying that your position, all the things that we've said, that you've experienced every spiritual blessing, that you've been adopted into his family, that you are blameless, that you, you've received the Holy Spirit, that all those things that are true about you, that you were dead in your trespasses and you've been made alive in Christ, would then be lived out. Chapters 4, 5, 6, in your marriage, at your workplace, 
with your kids, in all of your relationships, with other believers. You'd submit to one another, you'd demonstrate, you'd walk worthy of the calling that you have in your spiritual battle, that you'd stand firm in your faith. Will you pray this prayer? I asked you what is the boldest prayer you've ever prayed. Would you pray this prayer? God, make yourself at home in my life. Strengthen me for your love and fill me with your fullness. Sometimes when people pray stuff, they don't even know what they're asking for. Remember that guy told me that after the first service, teach me to trust you. Seems so simple. I, I challenge you to pray this prayer, but, but think about it. I mean, if you've got pride, he's going to break you. If you've got sin and, and deception, he's going to bring truth. Are you ready for truth? Are you ready for the truth? Because some of us, we can't handle his love. I'm going to challenge you to pray that. And we're going to go to the Lord right now and pray and spend some moments praying. The worship team's going to come and lead us in a song, but before they even get to that song, I just want you to have some time, just, we'll just call it like a time of ministry where just you and the Lord are talking. Ask him to reveal. For you to dwell in my heart, for you to make yourself at home, what do you need to take out, God? What do you need to bring in? For me to be strengthened, to receive your love, what, what are you going to do? It might just say to you, just trust me.